0: Welcome, we're we're here at the end of our four-week sermon sermon series about Jonah, and um, if you've been with us all the way through, that's great. If you haven't, you should know this is the last week that the bulletin will double as an adult coloring page, and so we encourage you to take advantage of that while you're here. Actually, just in case you've missed, uh, some of the messages or forgotten the story, I want to just remind you of the story of Jonah. It's a short book, four chapters. Thank you. And what happens is that Jonah is a prophet and God asks him to go to the city of Nineveh and preach against that city. It's a very wicked city. They're doing terrible, horrific things that I won't get into. Um, But Jonah does not want to go, and he runs away instead. And we find out later that the reason he runs away is because he hates Nineveh so much, he's worried that if he goes there and preaches, the people might listen to him, they might turn around and do better, and God might not destroy them. So he's so concerned that God might not destroy the Ninevites that he just runs in the opposite direction. And then there's all kinds of chasing that goes that goes on. He's on a boat and there's a big storm and he gets thrown overboard and a big fish swallows him, which is... Well, that's not in very many stories, right? And then he gets spit out by the fish onto the land and he finally does decide to go to Nineveh. And the very thing he was worried about happens. He preaches and the people are convicted to change the way they're living. And they turn away from their wicked ways, and God relents and does not punish them. And that's where we pick up the story this morning in Chapter 4. You'll notice that uh, in the inside of your bulletin, you have the entirety of Chapter 4 printed on here. And you may or may not have learned about me yet that I like you to be involved in learning about the scripture with me. So we're going to dig quite deeply into chapter 4 this morning. And I'm going to read it for us. And while I'm reading, there's a job for you. What I'd like is for this half of the congregation to pay attention to the character of Jonah in the story. So I know that in the middle that means there's going to be some families divided, but that's okay. So this half of the congregation is going to pay attention to Jonah. As we're reading, you're going to ask yourself, What is Jonah like in this story? What seems to be going on for him? What do you notice about him? And this side of the congregation is going to pay attention to God. What is God like in this story? How does he interact with Jonah? What do you notice about him? Similar questions. Uh, You don't have to guess. If the story doesn't tell you the answer to the question, that's okay. But whatever you notice, just take note of that. You can write it down if you want, um, and we'll come back. So... Uh, Let's read chapter 4. Let me read chapter 4 out for you. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Remember, this is that God is now not going to burn up the Ninevites. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. So funny, this character, right? You're slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry you have been concerned about the plant though you did not tend it or make it grow it sprang up overnight and died overnight and should i not have concern for the great city of nineveh in which there are more than hundred and twenty thousand people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals now i'd like you to turn into little groups uh, four or five people, whatever gives you enough to have an actual conversation. And I'd like you to work on these questions, the Jonah side and the God side. What do you notice about those people? I'm going to give you two minutes, so just jump into groups and answer those questions. Okay, it sounds good, and I'm going to give you one more minute, so don't leave your group. But in the last minute, I'd like you to consider, especially if you've been here, think back over the rest of the story to ask, are your observations consistent with your character through the whole story? So what you notice about Jonah today, have you also been noticing about him for the whole book of Jonah? And what you notice about God in this part, has that been true for him in this whole story? Okay? Okay. Well let's um let's share together a little bit. Uh it sounds like there's great conversation. I know that this is different from a normal uh sermon, but I don't think I should be the only one who has to work this morning. And uh <laughs> and you seem to be having a good time. So um let's hear from the Jonah side first. We'll hear from both, but Jonah comes up first in the story. What do you notice about Jonah? You can just call it out and I'll repeat it for the recording that will already have these great big dead holes in it. So, Okay. What do you notice about Jonah? You can really relate. Uh, To what? What in particular? Reluctance, fear, anger. He has a lot of feelings, this guy, right? Yeah, good. Thank you. Somebody else. He's quite dramatic. (laughs) He's a bit of a drama queen. Yeah, 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 yeah. What, what do we, what makes us say that? How do we get to drama queen? What's he doing? I just want to (laughs) die. Yeah, and it might not happen. That's good. Okay. Yeah, he runs away. He's running a lot. But I notice about him that he's running, but he's also like, quite connected to God. Like, he does a lot of talking to God for somebody who's always running away from God. Yeah. He's kind of a loner. Who said that? Oh, I just couldn't see. (laughs) Yeah, he's always alone. Why, Why is that? Good. Anybody else? Oh, did he ever love his plants in an unhealthy way. I can relate to that. Okay. Um, (laughs) That's great. Good job, you guys. Um, I just want to say that if you enjoy this kind of interaction with the scripture, that you might want to sign up for one of the Encounters with Jesus Connect groups. Let's do a tiny little plug for my own groups since I am up here. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So what we notice about Jonah is that, like, oh, man, He's kind of cranky and he's whiny and he flip-flops around with his emotions all the time. But then he also has this pretty active relationship with God. He does eventually obey God. I think that's so interesting about him. I find it so interesting that he's, like the word that I wanted to use was fickle. Like he seems to just... Change his mind constantly, and even when his reason is working, his feelings just swoop in and overwhelm him, right? He knows what he should do, but he just feels differently, and he's, and he's gone. And frankly, he's kind of self-absorbed. Did you, did you notice this? That Jonah is totally the center of his own story. And it's all about him. That's how he makes all his decisions. Okay, like we were saying at the very end here, Val was saying, this plant grows up, God makes this plant grow up, and Jonah, it says, is very happy about the plant. He's thrilled that the crazy plant came. And then within 24 hours, he's devastated, he's asking to die, and nothing has changed except he's hotter. That's it, right? It's just hot it's like the difference between like like winter and summer, and now he's like, I want to die. That's a little self-absorbed, just because you're uncomfortable. It seems like his whole basis for evaluating whether life is good or bad is whether or not he happens to be comfortable that day. It's the same pattern that we see with Jonah earlier on, actually. He praises God for being merciful when he's inside that fish. Like, it doesn't sound like merciful to be inside a fish belly, but the alternative was drowning. So he was going to either drown in the ocean or he gets swallowed by a fish. And he's praising God in that fish, for God is so merciful and has saved him. But then he's furious when God is extending the same mercy to the Ninevites. So he, his rubric for evaluating events is how they affect him. He's self-centered. And really, I mean, aren't we all? You know, I had a student once named Matt, and we had known each other for five or six years because he was a student for a long time. And uh, <laughs> he was. And he called me one night. He wanted to come over. Um, because his great aunt had passed away and he was really struggling. And so he came over and he sat in my living room with his brother, Jamie, and they told me stories about their great aunt and shared their favorite memories. And, and then Matt started to say, you know, I don't know why God would do this to me. Why would God do this to me? Maybe he doesn't really love me. Maybe I'm not going to follow God anymore. And I don't want to be insensitive, because I understand that when we lose someone who's close to us, we have all kinds of feelings, right? We just run the gamut of feelings. And God can absolutely handle that. But it was strange, and I'd known Matt for a long time, so I said, Matt, like, your aunt was in her late 80s, and she had been sick. Like, this isn't totally unexpected. Did you think, like, did you think that she would live forever? Because death is a is that's a normal part of life and everybody dies eventually. And because he is a particularly theologically minded student, I said, "You know, people died yesterday and you believed in God. So what's different today?" And I mean, I understand what was different, right? Like I I really do. I know that what's different is that this is someone who he loves. It really matters to him. And of course, people died yesterday, but he didn't know them. They weren't close to him. And so it didn't feel the same. It didn't affect him. He wasn't questioning God yesterday. And the truth is, Matt did not walk away from God. He's finishing his studies, finally, now, to become an Anglican priest. He's serving faithfully. He's a lovely man. But this experience highlighted something for me that I think is really critical for us to understand, especially as North Americans. We tend to evaluate God's character based on how God's actions make us feel. I'm going to say it one more time. We tend to evaluate God's character based on how his actions make us feel. And so that means that if God does something that makes me feel bad, I think that God must be bad. If something happens that makes me uncomfortable or frustrated or angry or sad or if I lose someone or something or if life is a struggle or if anything happens that affects me negatively and I think that God could have changed it then I hold God responsible and I start to believe that he's mean, he's vindictive, he's out to get me, or just that he doesn't care about me, he's forgotten about me. The other side of that coin, which we are sometimes more comfortable with, is that when something makes me feel good, then I believe that God is good. So I found a good parking spot, or it's sunny today, or I got a good job, or that boy finally asked me out, you know, and therefore God must really love me. He's really paying attention to me and he cares. And so the positive spin looks nicer, but it's the same thing. I'm evaluating God's character based on how his actions or events make me feel. Now we come by this very honestly in North America. We're brought up, all of us, in a society that is so individualistic, so preoccupied with ourselves that we think that we are the center of the story. Everybody thinks they're the star of the show. In fact, all of our advertising relies on that idea. It relies on me thinking that I'm the star of the show, the center of everything. I deserve a bigger car and a bigger house and a different paint color. I deserve a dog and then a spray to make my house smell like I don't have a dog. And, you know, and I, and I, and I'm gonna color my hair and whiten my teeth and all of that is what's gonna make me happy. Because being happy is the goal. Because I'm the star of my show. And that's what I'm after. And we don't stop to ask as being happy what we should be aiming for. And then when you become a Christian, you have all of that stuff. You have that whole story, all that messaging about being the center of everything. It's already in there. And it's taken good root <laughs> by the time that you become a Christian. So then you try to lay the story about God on top of the other story. And so we end up kind of flimsy, (laughs) where we flip-flop around with God. When things are going well, we think he's good and kind and generous, and when things are more challenging, we question him or reject him, and we believe he's mean and stingy and out to get us. And this pattern is so dangerous, so dangerous. I was working at camp in Alberta one summer, and um, we had great camp weather, right, which is hot and sunny for a long stretch. (laughs) Like, it was hot and sunny for a month at camp, and then it rained for three days solid without stopping. And by the third day, I was, like, pulling my hair out, right, and I got to breakfast, and I was like, oh, I can't believe it's still raining. I can't believe it's still raining. What are we going to do with the kids? How are we going to run a third day of inside programming this Weather is awful. I hate this weather. And the director was so kind. You know, she's so wise and she's so kind. And she's just sitting beside me and she says, huh. Right? Yeah, that's never a good sound. Huh. You know, there's farmers, she said, on our street who haven't had rain on their fields for a month. And there's forest fires that maybe will get under control now. This is good weather. It's not entirely about our program. Okay. I was, I was self-centered, like super self-centered. It's dangerous for a Christian to evaluate God's character based on how his actions make us feel because we're very likely to misinterpret or just miss entirely what he's doing not just doing in my own individual life, but what he's doing in the whole of creation and humanity. It's a lie that following God is about making you feel better or about being happy. It's never been about a single life getting better, although they sometimes do. God is working to restore the whole of humanity to right relationship with himself. He's breaking down the dividing walls that keep people groups apart. He's bringing his his heavenly kingdom here on earth. And when we join him, no matter what it costs, no matter what it feels like, we do that because the end result is so worthwhile. And sometimes joining in the end result, sometimes joining in God's kingdom work is wonderful. (laughs) You know, and sometimes it costs us our lives. Like There are literally people this week who will lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. And if it doesn't cost us our lives, it will almost certainly cost us our comfort, our preferences, and our reputation. Like it does for Jonah. So, if we shouldn't use our feelings to evaluate God's character, what should we do? How are we supposed to make decisions about God? Well, I want to propose that we instead, through study, like through scripture study, and carefully getting to know God, that we let His consistent character help us interpret His actions. So, we develop, again, through study and getting to know Him, we develop a clear understanding. Who is God? Who has he been through all of time and history? Who is he now and who will he be tomorrow? It's the same thing. And then we hold that to be true no matter how we feel. So, for instance, if we find in our study that God is always loving and then something happens that seems mean, we can genuinely ask, why would a loving God do that? And we don't have to jump to Well, he must not be loving after all. We don't have to jump to that. We can ask it genuinely. Why? Why would this be happening? Is there something he's teaching me? Is this shaping my character in some way? Is there a way that this might benefit someone else? Or even, is it possible that this situation is not about me at all? Is it possible that I'm not the star of this show? So if we go back to Jonah's story, or rather, maybe it's better to say to God's story of restoring humanity to Himself, that happens for this brief moment in history to include a prophet named Jonah. We'll come to this side of the room. We're going to ask the side who are t- who are observing God. Sorry that you had to wait so long. Get ready, okay? Um, to tell, what did, what did you notice about God? What is He like? How does He interact with Jonah? Who wants to tell me? I know you've been sitting for a while now. It's not You're not quite in that rhythm. What did you notice about God? He's so calm. Isn't that an annoyingly calm question that he asks? Is it right for you to be angry? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, he's very calm through the whole thing. That's great. He's very consistent in how he treats Jonah through the whole book. Do you want to give us an example of that? Yeah. (laughs) That's great. So when he asks Jonah to go to Nineveh and Jonah runs away, God doesn't like, he doesn't turn into someone else. He doesn't start punishing Jonah. He doesn't choose somebody else for that voyage. He just keeps, he just keeps ushering Jonah towards his work. That's good. Anybody else? Yeah. Oh, he gives leeway. Like he has so much room for this to not go quite according to plan. And he acts like a father. I think that's such a great observation. God is like, he is so focused and consistent. He's determined that this message of warning and repentance will go to Nineveh. And he is determined that Jonah will be the one to take it there. (laughs) And for some reason, he's committed to helping Jonah come to see Nineveh the way God sees Nineveh. And God is merciful and he's patient with Jonah, just like he is with the Ninevites. And I don't know if you guys had this question, but for me, it leaves me with this question. Okay, God is merciful and he's consistent and he's patient and he's like a father. And what is going on with the plant Right? What is he doing with this plant that's up and down and the worm, eating it, and Jonah's hot, and he's cold, and he's all over the place? I want to suggest that this is about discipline. I have been watching Super Nanny a lot. Do you watch the show? If you don't watch the show, you need to go home and watch it. There's so many episodes on YouTube. Okay. Um, If you don't know it, here's what happens. This woman... This woman, Joe Frost, goes into a home where the kids are crazy, okay and, and she works with the parents to help them like bring their household back into order. And this is a total spoil alert. This, the show is exactly the same every single week. Every single time what's happened is that the parents have been afraid to discipline their kids, and Joe comes along and she starts telling them the same thing. Discipline is not mean. It's not mean. Your kids will not feel unloved. They need you to teach them. They need you to discipline them. She says the same thing every week. She says, this is the way you help them learn to deal with life. The way that they become healthy and functional people. That's me, actually. That's not her. But that's what I think, because when I worked with kids, they were, they were like, you know, young adults, and, and you could tell whose parents disciplined them and whose didn't. This is how they become healthy, functional people. They need discipline. It's a great show. And I think that's what God is doing with Jonah. He works with Jonah. He corrects him. He rebukes him. He offers him an object lesson with the plant. He is not willing to let Jonah stay angry and self-centered and fickle. He wants Jonah to grow up. Grow up. Get on board with the mission of redeeming the whole world. So he disciplines him. He doesn't write Jonah off as soon as he's been technically obedient and taken the message to Nineveh. He comes around to correct him and see if he can help Jonah grow. My confession to you this morning is that I am almost always a reluctant follower, especially with big things. So That's good, right? Might as well be the big things. I am... Some of you don't know that I worked with university students for 12 years, and I did not want to do that. When when I graduated from university, I didn't want to work with university students. Not at all. I was tricked into it, and that is a story for another sermon. (laughs) But I I was tricked into it, and it worked. The woman who did it was good at trickery. And um, I did it for 12 years, and I came to love it. And I want you to know, even though I know it's it's bragging, um, I was great at it. Like, really, really good. <laughs> my student group, oh, this is just like a last picture of students. Okay. My student group that I was working with then expanded so much that we hired six staff in three years, and we started ministry on three new campuses, and I was promoted, and everything was going fantastic. And so I was surprised one day when my supervisor uh, sat me down, and he said, here's what I notice about you to love people. Well, I was not impressed by that. And I said, "Um, excuse me? Of course I love people. Of course I do. And he said, well, okay. You love a few people. A few. And it took you years to decide that you were going to love them. He said, Dana, if you don't start loving way more people and getting way faster at it, you are not going to make it in this ministry. Everything's going to fall apart. It was so hard to hear that. Like, I still remember where we were sitting and what it felt like in my stomach when he said that. But he was right, and he was disciplining me. He's shaping my character so that I could follow Jesus and take care of the students who'd been entrusted to me. And that discipline, like that particular word about loving people, more people, and faster opened up this whole world to me, a world of friends and partners in the gospel and kingdom family that I would have missed. That one word means that now, or meant that now, when I move to a new place, instead of holding people at arm's length, I move expecting that I will deeply love them and that they'll become family to me. I'm so grateful That he was willing to bring that hard word. God is inviting us to be part of something way bigger than our own comfort. He's inviting us to be part of his work putting the world right again. So God says to Jonah in verse 10 You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. It's just a plant. And should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know what they're doing? That's the invitation, to see something way bigger than yourself. Jonah, God says, I want you to feel the joy you felt about the plant 120,000 times over for humans. Right? I want you to know an expanse of love you have not imagined. I want you to love the world like I do. And then the story ends. And we have no idea how Jonah responds to that word, which makes it an uncomfortably live story for us as we're trying to decide what we'll do now. What is your plant? What is God using in your life to discipline you? Have you been able to recognize it, or is it just making you mad? (laughs) Who is your Nineveh? Who's set before you that you're resistant to? And what kind of miraculous love might God want to show you if you would step towards them? So I have used the word invitation quite a bit. There's an invitation for Jonah to love Nineveh. It's sort of true. If you are not following God yet, it is most certainly an invitation for you, an invitation to join in God's work, to love like he does. He's waiting for you to be on board. But if you are already following God, I'm afraid it's not as much an invitation as it is an exhortation, a command, or an imperative. God will continue to discipline us Until we're ready to submit to Him. And the exhortation for all of God's followers is this love. Love recklessly, love wholeheartedly, love when it's foolish or expensive or impossible or when it hurts you. Love everyone. And my exhortation for you this morning is to let God discipline you, right? Let Him train your heart to His like you train a vine on a trellis. Let him lead you into the uncomfortable, demanding, aggravating, glorious soul, expanding work of loving others, so that you can see his kingdom come. I pray that that will be true for you and true for me this morning. Amen.